All right, so we, we continue um, in our series uh, this morning, and, and we, we've jumped in. We started our series called Freedom from Religion, uh, and we're taking a look at what it is that actually does a work in our lives and what it is that we've maybe substituted, okay, for the gospel. And so as we navigate through this today, there's a couple things I want to tell you as we start. I want to remind you that we're not mad at religious activity, okay? Uh, and when I say religion, some of you automatically think tradition. I'll be honest with you, I am not mad at tradition, okay? We will do here as a church, we will do some things that are traditional, and then as a church, we will do some things that aren't even close, okay? And, and the reason that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't is because ultimately what we're always all about is Jesus. We, we're never about religion because religion does not save us. Jesus Christ saves. It's the cross of Christ that sets us free. And so our goal is to start to navigate this a little bit, to figure out what it is that actually brings freedom from bondage. And you know what bondage is. Bondage is a simple word. It's easy to figure out. Bondage is the state of being a slave. That's all bondage is. Bondage is the state of being a slave. And all of us, at some point in time, either were in bondage or are still in bondage. And then there's some of us that, that for some reason, we do this ridiculous thing where we're no longer in bondage, but what we like to do is like to act like we still are, okay? And so what we do is we have to start to navigate this a little bit. And bondage, that happens to us simply because of the world that we're born into. I mean, you know this, right? You know the story. You know that God created and it was perfect. That God created a world where there was nothing wrong a world that was free of sickness and pain and relational turmoil and disease and anything that could cause problems. We were born into a world uh, that was perfect. And then all of a sudden, sin enters into the world and everything is broken. And now when people are born, they're actually born into bondage. You didn't do anything to earn being born as a slave to sin except for the fact that you were born. And perhaps you would say, well, that's just unfair. But that's the, that's the doctrine of original sin. That's just what happens. When you were born as an imperfect, broken, messy human being, you were brought into this world, and, and you're automatically a slave to sin. You know that. If you've got kids, think about it. Nobody had to teach them how to sin. They were really good at it all on their own. I mean, think about it. What was the first moment? The first moment as a, as a young parent where you started to realize that my kid's a jerk. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. For me, um, well, I mean, we, we didn't get Riley till she was 10. So we were well aware of her jerkiness when she came to live with us. Love her. Okay, she got over it for the most part, okay? But I remember Travis. Travis was our first baby, right? And it's that moment. You know, everybody has this moment, the moment where he's, he's sitting in the high chair, 
He's like, I'm not eating that. You can't make me. You're like, I'm your dad. Of course I can make you eat this. And turns out, you can't. Right? And so there's the spitting, there's the hitting, there's the throwing, there's the clawing. Like, no, I refuse. And I mean, honestly, who wants to eat strained carrots? Okay, I get it. But, but you know that minute, you didn't have to teach him how to be that way. He just was. It's part of our nature. It's part of who we are. We are born in bondage to sin. That's why the cross of Christ happened. Because God wanted you. He wanted me. We were stuck in sin. And so all of a sudden, because he loves us with this crazy, ridiculous, passionate love, he sends Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sin so that we don't have to be stuck in bondage anymore. And that's, that's what happens. That's what this is about. Okay? But the thing is, even when we're right with God, even when we've come to the cross, even when we've experienced forgiveness, even when we're right, we still sin. See, Satan's good at that. Satan does that to us, right? Because whatever, whatever sin we had in our life before we come to the cross, it doesn't disappear. The power of sin to own you disappears at the cross, but your proclivity to sin that's just as powerful, and Satan continues to parade it in front of you. You had lust before you came to the cross. The power of lust to own you is gone at the cross of Christ, but lust in your heart still exists. You drank too much before, right? The power of sin in your life to, to keep you at the bottle, that's broken. But, but the desire to drink, that's there. I mean, and you... you Plug a sin in, anger, bitterness. Plug it in, and it's still true. And Satan brings those things in front of us, and here's what happens. He makes them look good. He makes them look attractive. He makes them look better than they are. And because you're human, because I'm human, there are times that we, that we succumb to sin, whether it's anger and bitter. I mean, whatever it is, again, we, we, we... And then what's he do right away? Satan, because he's, because he's who he is, because he's evil, then he turns on us. How dare we? How dare you call yourself a Christian when you're going to act like that? How dare you claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior when you're going to go ahead and you're going to continue to do those things over and over and over again? And we get stuck in this cycle. And that's where religion gets dangerous, and that's where it can be helpful for some of us. Because religion teaches us on its own that when we mess up, we have to make up for it. See, religion teaches us that when we make a mistake, that we have to do certain things, we have to go through certain processes, we have to figure out certain ways so that we can now be okay again, that God will accept us again, that God will be happy enough with us again, and, and that we've made up for it. You know what? We, we act like God is the parent and we're the kid, right? And when our kids make mistakes, right, we, we send them to their room. If it's a really bad mistake, we might send them there without dinner, right? Or at least dessert, right? Go to your room, okay? No TV for you. You got to go to bed early. We get, and, and then 
there's a thing, and kids know that when you send them to their room, there's this thing where it's like, how do I make up for it? What are the right words I can say? What are the right apologies I can make? Should I clean up my room without being asked to? Will that do the trick? Should I do dishes tomorrow even though nobody said I was supposed to do dishes tomorrow? Maybe I should come home and cut the lawn because then that will let God know or that will let my parents know that, that, that I'm really, really sorry. And then they'll think everything's okay and we'll be back to normal. And the problem is we start to treat God like that. That's what religion does. See, religion tells us that there's a checklist that we hit to make it okay again. I've been a pastor for three years, and in three years, I've done 36 funerals. It's about one a month. It's more than I thought. Most of those folks aren't Blessed Hope people. They're um, people in the community with no church home or, uh, (coughs) excuse me, um, and and they've just needed someone. And and so I've done 36 funerals, but, but of those, I've had the opportunity to sit with multiple people when it was the end and they knew it in the hospital room or at their home on hospice to sit and and to talk with them knowing that the end was coming. And I can tell you this, there's always a significant difference between someone that's trusting in religion to save them and between someone that's trusting in Jesus Christ to save them people that are trusting in religion, when I talk to them at the end, you know what they say to me? I hope. I mean, I hear that all the time. I hope. I hope I've done enough. I hope I've been good enough. I hope that that God will accept the best parts of me. I hope that God knows how much I really tried to do right things. I'm going to be honest with you. I've heard that far too many times on a deathbed, people hoping in their religion. But when I sit down with somebody who is trusting in Jesus Christ to save them, do you know what they tell me? No questions asked. As we sit and we talk, you know what they tell me? They tell me, I'm ready. I'm good. I know. I remember my, my grandfather uh, my grandfather, who was, who was not an overly religious guy, but at the end, um, at the end um, understood Jesus Christ and understood the cross. And, and when the decision was, was, you know what, you can stay on oxygen and we can drag this out. Or you can decide to be off the oxygen and you can just let it run its course. I mean, he ripped that thing off his face so fast. And he said, I'm ready. I'm ready. But then I've known other people who will do whatever they can to cling, to hold on to it. Because they're just not sure. And it's the difference between religion and a relationship with Jesus. It always was. Look, religion says, do. Do more. Make up for your mistakes pay your penance, show up on time, give your amount, do everything that you can to make sure that God is okay with you. But a relationship with Jesus, he says it on the cross, he says, look, it's done. That's all there is to it. And the book of Colossians continues to teach us this as we get back into it. And so we'll jump in and we'll see, well, where does this ridiculous confidence come from? See, last week we read Hebrews 11.1 that said, faith is the confidence 
we have in things we can't see. It's the substance of things that we hope for. It's confidence in what we don't see. That's faith. Well, where does it come from? Well, it comes from Jesus Christ. It comes from this statement that Paul makes as we jump in in Colossians 1. You can open up your Bible or you can follow along with where we are, but here's what he says. He says, for he has rescued us. I love the word rescue there, right? You are the product of a rescue mission, right? When Jesus came to earth, it was um, not so that he could be a good moral teacher. Jesus said some awesome things, right? When Jesus came to earth, it was not so that he could teach us how we're supposed to treat one another, right? I love the Beatitudes. I, I, I love the Sermon on the Mount. I love all of those things. They're great, but that's not why he came. Now, I'm not saying you should ignore what he said about how you treat people or ignore what you said about the ways to live a moral life. No, of course not. Jesus said it, it's important, but the purpose in his coming was not to do any of those things. He came on a rescue mission to save you, to save me. So he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. See, we just start this, you know, where does this confidence come from? That religion, we have to keep working harder, but that Jesus, with Jesus, it's just done. Where does it come from? It comes from this truth, that he's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. That's why we say it's finished. That's why we say it's done. That's why we say it's the cross of Christ that justifies, not the things that you do or the things that you participate in. It's the cross of Christ that does that. So understand the simple truth, right? The purchase price for the freedom was non-negotiable. The rescue mission, it was bloody. There was a steep price it's been paid, and it's burglar-proof. So if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you this now, and I'll remind you so many times between now and then, I hope, but if I have the opportunity to sit with you on your deathbed, if I have the opportunity to sit with you as you struggle, okay, or with a loved one as they struggle, or, or we have this conversation, listen to me. The price for your freedom was non-negotiable, it was expensive, and it was paid, and it is burglar-proof. You don't have to hope that you've done enough. You don't have to hope that you were good enough. You don't have to hope that you made up for enough sin. You don't have to hope that your good outweighs your bad. By the way, you know that's a very Muslim idea, right? In Muslim theology, that's how it works. You have two angels with you, Right? You have two angels, one on each shoulder, and one angel records all of the good things that you do, and another angel records all of the bad things that you do, and at the end, your good deeds go on this side of the scale, and your bad deeds go on this side of the scale, and whichever side wins out, that's where you end up. But we've taken that, and religion, to a degree, has adopted that as a Christian idea, that we have sin, and we have to make up for our sin. But it's not, it's, it's not the way that it works. It's not the way that it works. It's burglar-proof. You have confidence. Stop wondering if God is upset with you and start wondering, right, why in the world 
God would choose to save me and how in the world I can live a life that honors that decision. See, it's, we're never going to tell you that you don't have to work hard as a Christian. Guess what? As a Christian, you have to work hard. But you work hard as a Christian not to make up for your mistakes. You work hard as a Christian to honor the decision that God made when he sent Jesus to the cross. So we keep going. Colossians 1.15, we're going to see how this all plays out and why we can have such ridiculous confidence. And it says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and he's supreme over all creation. Okay, so the thing that you need to understand that is that when you look at Jesus, you know what you're seeing? You see God. And that, <coughs> it doesn't mean that Jesus looks like God because we see God as the invisible and Jesus is the visible image. But what it means is that when you know Jesus, when you have a personal relationship with Jesus, when you trust and follow Jesus, that that is you having a personal relationship with God. That is you trusting and following the God of the universe. And this Jesus, look, it says Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And look, just so you're clear that he's not just a human guy, it says he existed before anything was created and he is supreme over all creation. One of the reasons that we have this unbreakable promise in the cross of Christ is because Jesus isn't just a guy. See, this is what you have to get. Anybody that tells you or any religion, I don't care if they're a Christological religion or not. You know, Christological does not mean that they're all about Christ. What it means is that they use the name Jesus Christ. But any religion, any idea that tells you that Jesus was just a guy, that's not Christianity. Jesus is the invis I'm sorry, he's the visible image of the invisible God, and he existed before anything else was created. And he is supreme over all creation. He is not just a guy. It's this grand doctrine. It's called, you can write this down and be, and be all fancy in front of your friends. It's called the hypostatic union. It is the doctrine that talks about the fact that Jesus is fully God, fully divine, and at the same time, he is fully human. But he's not just a guy. Okay? He's the picture of the invisible God. That's why he says, he tells the disciples, Thomas says, hey, show us, who is this God? We don't know the way to God. And he says, look, you've been with me all this time. So he says this at the Last Supper. He says this the last night he has with his disciples. He said, you've been with me all this time and you still don't know? He says, you've seen me. And because you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And because you know me, you know God. Because this is who I am. Christ is... He's supreme. He's original. He is the one that does all this for us. And we keep going in Colossians 1. For through him, God created everything. In the heavenly realms and on the earth, he made things we can see. He made things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. And see, so this is the picture that Christ is preexistent. He is God, and God uses him to create everything. You're like, well, how can I be sure that my sin was canceled out at the cross? How can I know for sure that my sin was canceled on the cross? Well, you know for sure because 
Jesus is the master of everything. Everything that exists, exists because he decided that it would exist. He created all. There is nothing that exists that he didn't create. In fact, he created things that you didn't know were created. Things that you thought might have happened just by circumstance or might just have popped up. He created not just the world we live in, but he created the spiritual world as well. He created things like kingdoms and rulers. He created all of these constructs that exist in our world today. Hierarchies, everything that exists, exists because Jesus Christ willed it to exist. Everything was created through him and for him. Now listen to me. Don't gloss over that. Don't gloss over the idea that everything that exists, exists because of him. You know who glossed over that? Job glossed over that. And God had to correct Job over this misunderstanding of what it means to be the author of creation. So here's how God challenges Job in Job 38. He says, brace yourself because I have questions. And he says that you must answer. But the the idea is you can't answer them. So this is what he says in Job 38, starting in 4. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundation? Who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst forth from the womb? As I closed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness. For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, thus far and no farther you will come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear? Have you ever caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth and bring an end to the night's wickedness? Have you explored the springs from which the seas came? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Where does light come from? Where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? Have you visited the storehouses of the snow or the storehouses of hail? Where's the path to the source of light? Where's the home of the east wind? Who created a channel for the torrents of rain? Who laid out the path for the lightning? Who makes the rain fall? Listen to me. God says here, I have made everything that there is. See, you want to have confidence in Jesus. Know that he is the author of everything that exists. And when Jesus says, who creates everything, when Jesus says, hey, it is finished, then guess what? We can have confidence in the fact that it is finished. We keep going. 17 and 18. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. He is the first in everything. See, get that. So what what God is telling us here in Colossians is that not only did Jesus create it all, but that he serves as head of it all. That everything has always been about Jesus. All of creation, all of existence has always been about Jesus. 
See, you should see this buildup in the author's writing. You know, he starts by saying, Jesus, this guy, he, he rescued you. He ransomed you from death. He brought you into light. He, Jesus, in verse 15, he's the visible picture of the invisible God. And then we get to 16 and 17, or I'm sorry, in verse 16, he creates everything. He was the only one that existed before, and he creates everything, all of it, visible, invisible, everything's by his creation. And now we get to these verses, and it's a building. It's building more. Oh, by the way, this Jesus, by the way, he's supreme over everything. He is ruler over everything. He is master of everything. It all belongs to him. See, what, what God's doing here for us, what the author is doing for us here, uh, what God is, is speaking through Paul, and Paul's telling us that we can have confidence in God, that he is like an unbreakable, unbeatable security system. You know, if you, if you Google security systems, you'll get pages upon pages upon pages of things called unbreakable security systems. Alarms that you put in your house, in your car, over your personal identity, unbreakable. And then you get to like page four or five on Google, and then you'll get to the pages about how to beat the unbeatable security systems. I don't suggest that you go there. I don't think there's any reason for you to want to know how to break into people's homes, whatever, it doesn't matter. Okay, but it's there, right? But there is something that is truly unbeatable, truly unbreakable, and, and God is painting this picture for us that your salvation, when you own it in Christ Jesus, is non-negotiable. You don't have to worry about losing it. You don't have to worry about it being taken away from you. You don't have to worry about holding on to it and cementing it in. You don't have to worry about making up for your sin because then it'll be okay. You don't have to worry about any of that because everything was done through Jesus who we see this slow build of who he is and we get here that he is supreme over all who rise from the dead. He's the first in everything. He's the head of the church. And you're like, well, how does that work? How does the guy that's supreme, how did he die? What's that about? And that's what makes Philippians 2 so important for us to understand. It's as though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. You know this one. We, we look at this all the time. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on the cross. And right there, we start to be like, okay, well, wait a minute, we'll time out. He's this great, he's this awesome, and yet he humbles himself, and he dies on the cross, and he does that for sin. But I want you to understand that it's not just that. Too many times we stop here, and we don't read what's next. He humbled himself in obedience to God. He died a criminal's death on the cross, but you have to see this. Therefore, oh my goodness, it's tricky. There, that's the one, Yes. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, this is what I need you to get here. I need you to understand that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was, yes, your forgiveness for sins. That is a true fact. When you follow Jesus... 
When you say, Jesus, I surrender to you and I want you and I'm following you, I'm now going to make your will more important than my will and I want what you want for me. When you make that decision, God forgives you of your sin. But something else happened then also. Something else was accomplished with Jesus bursting forth from the grave. And it wasn't just that you get to be okay with God. It was that it secured his place as head over everything. See, everything that was true about him, this is what Paul's telling us, everything that was true, he's the visible image of the invisible God. He creates everything. He's supreme over everything. He's the head of everything. We read this here in Philippians 2. Yes, he died, but when he burst forth from the grave, when he came again, the fact that he humbled himself to death and he conquered death, now every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Living or dead, in the earth, under the earth, there will be no one that does not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. The question, though, is when will we acknowledge it? Will we be on our deathbed going, I, I hope I did enough? Or will we be on our deathbed saying, I am ready and I am confident because Jesus Christ is Lord. And he said, it is finished. And he took care of it. And he did everything that there was to do. And the author continues, it builds Colossians uh, 1, 19 and 20 says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Okay? He wasn't just a guy. Fully divine, fully man, was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. See, it was, it was the crucifixion that did everything. It's the crucifixion that does everything. This is why you need to embrace some freedom here. And I don't want to I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want to ruffle anyone's feathers. I don't want to poke at anyone's background. So I'll use mine. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. Okay, well, no, I grew up in a, uh, I started at a Presbyterian church. But we left before I had any idea what was going on, right? Um, because my parents had some ideas about what was going on, and, and it had fleas. So we left that church. And we started going to a different church. Um, it was a, a little Southern Baptist church, and... and um, my parents stopped going to that one, but I ended up going by myself. It's like a 12-year-old kid. I'm like, hey, will you drop me off at church this morning? I know, I was a weird kid. I used to wear ties to church, too, when I was like 12. Um, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know what happened. Um, but yes, I do. Never mind. Um, but but we get to, I got to this point, right, where, where every, at the end of every service, there would be an altar call. And I'm not mad at altar calls. I like altar calls. 
But every service, there would be an altar call and there would be a prayer. We called it the sinner's prayer. It's really the Billy Graham prayer. But, but what was taught to us was that if you don't do it, then God can't accept you. See, if you don't, if you don't say the words, then it can't be real. If you don't say it exactly like this, if you don't hit all the highlights, if, if you don't make sure that you say, God, I know this, and God, I recognize that, and you must be this, and I must be that, and I need you for this, if you don't hit all the major points, then there's just no way you can be saved. It's unequivocally false. And then as I grew up, and, and, and especially as I pastor, and I talk to other people that have had other churches' experiences, you, you know what? If you're not baptized, you can't be saved. If you haven't gone through confirmation, then you can't really be a Christian. If you haven't taken your first communion, then it can't really be true for you, right? If you haven't been baptized in this fashion, then it can't really be true for you. And ultimately, everything that we do is about elevating some form instead of elevating the God of the universe. But ultimately, it's all secondary. And I'm not mad at any of those things. I'm not mad at the sinner's prayer. I'm not mad at altar calls. I'm not mad at baptism, confirmation. I'm not mad at the Lord's Supper or communion. I'm okay with all of those things in the right context. And the right context is not that they will ever save you. It is the cross of Christ that saves you. And you cannot add to it. And there is nothing extra that you can do to cement in salvation. It doesn't work that way. Oh my goodness, where'd I get lost? Right? We're made right by God, right? By the death of Jesus. And there's nothing else you can do. And there's nothing else you need to do to make that stick. Being a Christian isn't about going through motions. It's not about checking things off your list. Being a Christian is about recognizing what Jesus accomplished on your behalf and then spending your life chasing him. That's what this is. If you're here today and you are trusting something else to save you, you're going to be sadly mistaken. If you're here today and you're trusting the cross of Christ to save you, then you can have such ridiculous confidence. But I promise you, when you get to that moment and when you get to that day, God is not going to ask you what religious things did you do in your life to atone for your sin. That is not a question he will ask you. He is unimpressed with all of it. What I can promise you is that on that day, in that moment, God will say, what did you do with my son who atoned for all of your sin? What did you do with Jesus? Did you trust him? Did you follow him? Because it's the cross of Christ that matters. And so we continue. We get ready to wrap this up here. And we get to Colossians 21, uh, 1, 21, and 22. And it says, this includes you. By the way, if you ever thought you were too far gone, you're not too far gone. You ever thought you'd made so many mistakes that God couldn't possibly forgive you? That God was so angry with you that your sin was so high that nothing you could do could make it okay? 
It's not true. Look at this. This includes you who were once far away from God. So far away from God that you were his enemies. Separated it from him, not just by your evil behavior, but also by your evil thoughts. Some of you have enemies in your life. You shouldn't, right? But some of you have enemies in your life. So you, you can kind of understand what we're talking about. But God says, once you were my enemy. That says, once you were my enemy. But I still loved you. I still cared for you. While you were still a sinner, I died for you. You were separated from me, but now, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he's brought you into his own presence. And now, get this, now you are in the presence of God. Not physically, but spiritually. Spiritually, you are in the presence of God. The Holy Spirit, as a Christian, if you're here as a Christian, by the way, all of this talk about what doesn't make you a Christian, what does make you a Christian, again, very simply is this. Jesus died for me. I need a Savior. I'm following Jesus. And then, really, following Jesus. It's that simple. That's all it takes. It's a momentary decision that you need and that Jesus is that person and then it's a lifetime of just chasing after him. But it says when that's you, as a result, you've been brought into God's very own presence. And get this, God cannot be with sin. This is what I need you to get. This is the big idea. This is why this is unbreakable. I don't care how you screwed up this morning. Some of you that are Christians here, you have sinned terribly in the last 24 hours. Don't even get me going about the last 48 hours. And if we look at the whole of last week, man, I mean, it weighs you down and it brings you down. Some of you, some of you know what God wants from you and you continue to do wrong anyway. And God won't tolerate that for very long. He will bring hardship and pain into your life to start to cut that away from you because God won't tolerate it for very long. But here's what you need to understand about your standing before God. When you sin, your standing before God is not compromised. See, we think because we mess up that all of a sudden God doesn't like us as much as he used to. The whole point of the cross is that God knew we were going to mess up. But now we are seen as, look at this, holy, blameless, and without a single fault as we are in the presence of God. We have to be seen that way to be in the presence of God because God can't tolerate sin. Understand what this is. When you are holy, that means that you are set apart by God. That happens through your relationship with Jesus. You are set apart by God. You are now different than you used to be. You are separated, set apart, holy. When you're blameless, you know that word for blameless? In the original Greek, you know what that word is? That word for blameless is the same word without blemish that was used to describe Jesus Christ and his ability to die for you. I mean, I want you to really get that. The reason that Jesus 
could sacrifice himself, the reason that he could allow himself to be the perfect sacrifice because he was sinless. There was no sin in him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might have the righteousness of God on us. When God says, you are blameless, he's saying that now when I look at you, you dirty, disgusting sinner, when God looks at me, do you know what he sees legally? He sees me being perfect and spotless and without blemish. He sees me being holy. And then don't forget this last part here. This one is, is so important. It says, as you stand before him without a single fault. You know what that means, being without a single fault? Other, other translations say that is beyond reproach. What that means is that not only are you set apart, not only is God seeing you as perfect and spotless, but in this instance, nobody can even bring a charge against you. Nobody can even bring your name up as someone undeserving. Satan will try, he'll accuse you, but, but he can't. God says, now I see you as perfect and spotless, and without fault. And you are now beyond reproach. What court could they even charge you in? None. God says, I don't condemn you. They can't either. All of it's mine, and you are forgiven. And it is non-negotiable as a Christian. Listen to me. You do not need to trust in anything but the cross of Christ to save you. And I'm not saying that you should walk out of here and just go keep sinning. Because the cross of Christ also changes you. The cross of Christ has changed me. Ask the praise team to come up and prepare to close us out. The cross of Christ has changed me. It has made me significantly different than I used to be. Has it made me perfect? Legally, in God's eyes, yes. Physically, in my behavior, no. Spiritually, God sees me as perfect. In reality, I continue to sin every day. There's a difference. When I didn't know Jesus, I loved my sin. I reveled in my sin. I was happy in my sin, or so I thought. See, but now that I know Jesus... My sin disgusts me, and I mess up, but it is not my goal to continue to mess up over and over again. It's my goal to chase after Jesus, but I don't do that so that he'll like me more. I do that because he loves me like crazy, and I don't want to disappoint him. It's the cross of Christ that saves, and because of that, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are something so much better. Would you stand? We're going to sing this last song. Would you pray with me? And I don't know what that is. That's not the last song. Um, yeah, whatever. Anyway, pray with me. Heavenly Father God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the truth that you are a good and gracious 
God, we thank you that you forgive us. We thank you that it's the cross of Christ that saves, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but that we now are children of God Most High, who sees us as perfect and blameless and without fault, and that no one can accuse us in your eyes because we are righteous. God, thank you for that truth, and I thank you for the fact that I don't have to add to it that I don't have to accomplish things on my own behalf, but that Jesus paid it all. Father, we thank you so much. Amen. Listen, it's that simple. If you are a Christian here this morning, if you're not a Christian and you want to know more about what that means, you come talk to me. It's not complicated. It simply is just about choosing Jesus to be the Savior of your life to save you, right? We all need one. Jesus is the only one equipped for the job. He's the only one that's ever accomplished that for us. And it's simply choosing him and following him. If you want to know more about what that's like or what that means, come talk to me. But if you are here today and you are a Christian, you have chosen Jesus, then it simply is this. You are not a slave to sin or fear or doubt or shame or pain or suffering or any other thing any other thing that makes you doubt yourself. But you are a child of God. There is this unbreakable security that you have where God looks at you and he sees you as perfect. He sees you as spotless. He sees you as righteous. He sees you as his child. And that's non-negotiable. It can't be taken. No one can even bring a charge against you. That's what that means. To be blameless without single fault means that you are above reproach. No one can even accuse you of anything in the presence of God. It's biblical truth. God is not mad at you. God is not keeping score at your sin. God is calling you to live better because you are better. But as a Christian, God isn't angry. You are free to live better. I love you. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. Don't forget, camp over here. Uh, If you're interested, Sunday school in this room. Um, And if you're going to be able to help with the bus, talk to Blake or Mike. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Mm